2030, 85% of the jobs that exist in that year do not exist today, here in 2020. That's a, a mind-boggling idea. That's Asbury University President Dr. Kevin Brown, who will discuss today how Asbury is preparing for that fast-paced future. This is Belonging and Becoming, and I'm your host, Doug Walker. Today's episode is The Future of Christian Higher Education, Threats, Opportunities, and Challenges. I'm Doug Walker, a media communication professor here at Asbury University, and I'm joined by Dr. Kevin Brown, uh, the president of Asbury University. So glad to have you with us today. Oh, thrilled to be here with you again, Doug. And we're going to talk about something I know that uh, matters to you, uh, yes, the future of Christian higher education. But we've got a variety of listeners who range probably, we don't know yet, but we assume anywhere from 19 to 90. Uh, and the question I wanted to start with is, what difference does this make to them? They may not be in school. It may be years till they're going to have a kid in school. But to everybody, why does this discussion matter? Well, the... The discussion about colleges and universities, our educational institutions, it is very central, I think, to our economy. It's central to our social world, our political world, and our cultural life as well. But I think especially for a faith-based institution like Asbury, uh, the recognition that we're not simply here for the transmission of information, but rather our task is formative. We're about the formation of a student, uh, about their character, their cultivation, their life trajectory. And obviously for any society, that's going to be fundamental. Well, let's move from there to the big picture. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're talking about the future of Christian higher education. So as you look at that, can you give us an overview of how you see the future of Christian higher education unfolding in the next decade or so? Absolutely. I think there will be some adjustments. I went to a conference a few years ago where this was actually, I believe, the title, What is the Future of Christian Higher Education? I remember texting my wife saying, this is fascinating and terrifying at the same time. So when I say adjustments, I think there will be a market correction uh, for a variety of reasons. We can get into that. Uh, one is just simply the demographics, the number of potential uh, eligible 18-year-olds who could enter into college at um, or around the age of 18. That cohort will take a precipitous drop over the next six to eight years. And so there'll just be less students available, first and foremost. Um, but there are other challenges that threaten the continuity of faith-based education. Um, I'll mention another one. At, uh, at an institution like Asbury, we are a Christian liberal arts institution. One of the things about the liberal arts, it's subject to uh, a narrative, a false narrative. And that false narrative goes something like this. Uh, you can either go to a liberal arts school and get this uh, highfalutin ivory tower education, but then be saddled with debt and live in your parents' basement because you can't find a job. Or you can 
get an attenuated, narrow, technical degree and be assured a job. And that is a false trade-off and it's a false narrative. In fact, when we look at data from employers, uh, they very much are valuing the very skills and competencies that are inculcated within a liberal arts paradigm. So uh, this education, this educational paradigm, is actually best suited to prepare students for the marketplace of the future. Um, but one of the challenges we need to overcome is this false narrative that's found its way uh, into the collective psyche uh, of the population. What are some of the other obstacles you see? There are other challenges I can speak to. We have political challenges that we're facing. Uh, we have a confidence challenge. Uh, we are a faith-based institution. Uh, when you look at institutional confidence surveys, I believe Pew does this, uh, some of the largest drops have been in organized religion and in higher education. Uh, well, we are a faith-based uh, institution of higher education, so I don't know if there's some above and beyond effect there, uh, but there has been a significant drop in the confidence uh, of an institution like Asbury and certainly within the faith tradition. So we have these areas that we have to overcome. However, I, I'm also very confident um, and what we provide, because again, we're not just selling information. We don't simply view students as, uh, as, as some might put it, brains on a stick. Uh, these vessels that we populate with information and move down the assembly line, credential them, and then they go off. Rather, we get into the lives of human beings. And you had asked me about some of my background uh, in our last podcast recording, and I will point to the college period of time where my life was changed, my imagination was opened up, I began to understand myself and my identity in new, exciting ways. And I am who I am today uh, because of that experience and because of the investment that women and men had made into my life. I think as long as we do that and seek to do that well, there will be a place for an institution like this, where students come in so that they can go out, serve the world, understand themselves, have an identity, find themselves a part of a mission, participating in the work of God, and finding deep fulfillment and gratification and satisfaction within that process. That might sound like a romanticized view of what we do, uh, but in my position now, I travel around the country and sometimes the world meeting Asbarians, and the story is the same, uh, that very story that I mentioned. So I think as long as we continue to do that well, there will be a place uh, for, for what we provide where men and women are willing to exchange dollars for it. But there are some, some points where we have to pivot to make sure that we continue to be relevant. So over the last year, a line that I've shared with people is, uh, the modalities, the methods by which we fulfill our mission will change. The mission doesn't change. You mentioned having to pivot. So what are some of the ways that you sense that Asbury will need to adapt and change in order to pivot to the future that you just talked about? There's a, an economist that I appreciate, and he's given the, the metaphor of a rubber band versus plastic. So when you stretch a rubber band, it snaps back into place. When you stretch plastic, it's forever changed. It's forever altered. It does not return to what it has been. And especially in, in a COVID-19 moment, uh, in the midst of a global pandemic, it is worth asking ourselves, what are those dimensions of our institution 
that snap back into place once we come out of the pandemic, uh, but what will be forever altered? So I think we'd be making a mistake to clamor back to uh, an existing structure, not least of which I think that a lot of the dimensions of higher education uh, have already been changing, and something like COVID-19 has only accelerated that. So when I think about what does it mean for us to be relevant in the future, uh, we have to think about the moment that we're in. I had mentioned before that uh, we are no longer in a manufacturing economy. Some are describing it as a creativity economy or a service economy. Uh, So what are those skills that are necessary uh, for our students to thrive into that future? Uh, A statistic I've shared with many over the last year, uh, there's a group, I believe they're called the Future of Work, uh, but they've said something along the lines of, in 2030, 85% of the jobs that exist in that year do not exist today, here in 2020. That's a a mind-boggling idea. Uh, But it shows that a decade in the 21st century is almost like a half a century in the 20th century. Uh, It's not simply that there's change. Every society and every time experiences change, but the velocity of change is so fast. So what are those skills and those competencies and those sensibilities and those virtues that are robust to outlive the dynamism of today's uh, high, uh, fast-paced, information-saturated marketplace. So I think we'll continue to do technical training across different departments, uh, but it's that liberal arts paradigm uh, that reinforces those skills and values, uh, the intellect, the critical thinking, the problem-solving, and some of those competencies that whatever time and space and place we find ourselves within, the students will still be relevant to that. I can think of many graduates Uh, And they're they're appearing in my mind right now that I don't know what 2035 will be like, but those graduates are going to be just fine. Well, you mentioned the liberal arts paradigm, and uh, I read an article recently that I shared a little bit with you that uh, John Kroger, uh, who was the president of Reed College uh, in Portland, Oregon, uh, said in Inside Higher Education that not only the liberal arts tradition, but the whole traditional on-campus model is going to lose, despite having great arguments on their side. So what do you think? Uh, Is it going to lose? We've heard arguments like this for a significant period of time. And to provide just one example, the MOOCs, uh, massive open online courses where um, some... Uh, technological medium would be able to provide information and teach uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of students at a given time at a low cost. And those just never took off. In fact, the the completion rates for courses like that are very, very low uh, relative to what we might see at a campus like ours. I certainly agree that technology will transform how education is delivered in some ways. But the the idea that apocalyptic disruptive forecasts um, will fundamentally change or alter, uh, I find myself skeptical, I'll put it that way. Here's why. A, a, A few important things to consider. When a student comes to college, and especially a residential college, and especially a faith-based residential college, 
There are several key things that are going on. First, there is the transmission of knowledge. There is being absorbed into a wisdom community, sitting under the, the teaching of a scholar. Uh, so that, that is occurring. But there's also a communal, formative, residential dimension. Uh, staying up late in the dorms and uh, uh, painting your face purple when you go to the, the soccer tournament and the, the other events that occur on campus that are forming you within a community and not just forming your identity, but also morally and spiritually formative practices as well, like chapel in our Bible studies. There's also a dimension where there, there's a contribution to knowledge and to research. And as I mentioned earlier, there's market signaling that takes place. Uh, upon graduation, a student uh, receives a credential. That credential is tried and true. It's lodged in the psyche of our institutions and individuals as communicating value, experience, character, and it's heavily vetted by a rigorous process. So the question becomes, can we unbundle these dimensions and offer them separately? And I think the answer is yes, if your approach to education is very narrow. Um, so if education is simply uh, learning dates of when a war took place or linear algebra, uh, the answer might be yes. But on the other hand, that is learning, but it hardly rises proportionate to the college experience and its importance. A friend of mine is an economist at, at Hope College, and he has written uh, about this very issue. Uh, can we unbundle education or unbundle the educational dimensions of what is happening at a college? And like me, he's, he's very skeptical. And my, my favorite quote from his article, he's quoting the economist Michael Munger, who I believe is at Duke. But Munger said, an online degree, an online dating service, a professional sports team in your city, and a proficiency certificate from Microsoft are not a la carte alternatives to a college degree. In other words, you can't just um, uh, take an amalgamation of those experiences and uh, equate that to a college experience. Uh, so there's some above and beyond effect we see uh, when all of these are put together. And to me, that's evidence that they, they cannot be unbundled. There is a different way of putting this as well. I read a book a few years ago by a gentleman named Salim Ismail called The Exponential Organization. Really fascinating book. And his point is that technology carries information and information grows exponentially. And so the sentence that arrested me was, he was describing the traditional business structure for an institution. And so uh, there's some product, there's some service experience, uh, you, you build some legal, legal superstructure around it, uh, a workforce, and then you, quote, sell access to scarcity. So then he drops the bomb after this. What happens when the thing you're selling access to is no longer scarce? And I, I believe I wrote in the margin uh, that has implications for higher, higher education. Um, now, information as I've put it, is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Uh, you and I can get online right now and uh, do those very things I mentioned earlier. How do, I, how do you do uh, linear algebra or who won the Super Bowl in 1997? Those things are available at our fingertips. And so 
the the implication is that faculty are no longer gatekeepers of information like they may have been in times past. But it does raise the question, what dimensions of a school like Asbury are still scarce? And when I say scarce, what I mean is they are not easily transferable. There, there's, there's an essence. There's some irreducible quality to what we provide. And I would say our deep communal bonds, this formative, deliberative, uh, deliberate spiritual experience. Um, I like to tell uh, prospective parents and students that there are literally men and women who go to bed and wake up every morning thinking about how to maximize the experience of your son and daughter, how to make sure that they're safe, how to make sure that they feel cared for, how to make sure that they are having a formative spiritual experience, how to make sure that they're resolving some of their problems, and how to make sure they have a vision for their future. We have rigorous, relevant 21st century education that will equip our students for this unknown future that I'm describing. I think that's a scarce element. I think that is still valuable and that people are still willing to exchange dollars for that value that they receive as long as we can continue to provide that. Uh, we're going to be relevant. As you look towards that future, one of the things that all of us, I know you included, are excited about is the new Collaborative Learning Center. Uh, what role do you see that playing in Asbury's response uh, to this coming decade's changes? Absolutely. The Collaborative Learning Center is a building we'll begin this fall, uh, so I'll be excited to see the, the bulldozers out. Uh, we're able to build it completely debt-free, which is truly amazing. Uh, so that is a, a function of our Ignited campaign, incredibly successful campaign that wrapped up earlier this year. And the building will achieve exactly what it's described. It's meant to provide collaboration between different disciplines. So we have business and we have science within that facility, uh, but there's also our search center. So this is a hub that will facilitate uh, collaborative interdisciplinary work across our entire campus. So a few things I would say about education in the future in this center. First and foremost, the, the spaces are designed for creativity, uh, for collaborative work. Um, so when you think about a classroom, if uh, the seats are all facing the front and you have a professor at front, that arrangement is reinforcing a set of values. And what it says is that whatever comes out of the professor's mouth is most valuable and students write that down or imbibe that in some way and regurgitate it back. Well, we know that how we teach and how we learn is going to be different, necessarily different for how we move forward. So classrooms will not necessarily follow this format. And so we'll have more uh, spaces for creativity and for collaboration than we've had otherwise. We also know that education, uh, even though it's been siloed we have different departments and academic units and a separate major and a separate minor. Uh, we know that there is a necessity for interdisciplinary work uh, between these disciplines. So last time we talked, uh, I described my background and economics and uh, some theology and some political philosophy. And it's fascinating to see how these speak into different areas. Uh, a better example one of the a, a key question is 
how do we measure happiness? And so when you begin to get into the methodology of happiness indices, you see that no single discipline can claim <laughs> uh, that particular question. Um, there's an economic dimension to this. Uh, there's a statistical or methods dimension. There's a psychology dimension. Uh, we, we have to ask some large questions about what does it mean to be happy? Is it a state of mind? Is it a state of being? How is that captured? How is it measured? Uh, is it just GDP per capita? Uh, are we happy because we have more money? Well, that's a Western assumption. Uh, how do we know if that's true or false, et cetera, et cetera. So we see that as we explore some of these questions, there's a necessity to recruit from other disciplines. So we wanna make sure that in a 21st century facility, we have spaces that actually encourage that kind of collaboration and encourage cross-disciplinary thinking. And not just simply in our space, but also the way we set up classes and curriculum so that we can foster that collaboration among our professors. That's the first episode of our two-part look at the future of Christian higher education. Part two will be featured in episode five next month. But before we wrap up, we want to invite you to be listening to what we think is an Asbury first for the theater department, a radio version of It's a Wonderful Life. It will air Thursday, November 12th on Asbury's student radio station, Air 90. Since coronavirus restrictions make it impossible to welcome a full crowd to the theater this fall, director Carol Anderson was looking for another option. So the reason I picked It's a Wonderful Life was because I was looking for a play, honestly, where I didn't have to have people talking to each other, but could be like talking straight ahead to the audience or around mics. And I thought, oh, well, that would work with this. So I read the script um, by Joe Landry, and it made me cry. Well, not sob, but like tear up, like good. And then I watched a video of a very professional company performing it, and it left me cold, just like I was watching them be different characters. I was no longer listening to the story. And that's when I thought, what if we used the magic of radio where we could tell the story, we could have different people use their voices differently, play different characters, and let the audience imagine it. And suddenly I thought this would be perfect for the time of COVID. And we figured out ways to get uh, plastic screenings around mics and do it in recording studios and um, even have masks on for the crowd scenes so you could get everybody in there, but everyone's safe and we would get them out in quick periods of time. So what I discovered though through the whole thing was we picked the perfect story for this time because it is a story of for anyone who's wondered during the times we're in, does kindness matter? Does decency matter? Does doing good things for people who don't say thank you seemingly matter? Um, do we matter? And what George Bailey discovers at his lowest moment is that it all does matter. And it matters in a bigger picture, and it matters now. And it's about people caring about people. And when I realized that in the midst of rehearsing it, that almost made me cry. So that's the story. One of the students in the production, Jackson Wilhelmy, says this experience was quite different than the usual live performance before a studio audience. It was actually really fun and it kind of provided a lot of freedom for, because we had multiple takes 
And like the, maybe we had one, two, three good ones. And then for the fourth one, Carol would always say like, okay, just have fun with it. Try something new and maybe it works. And she said that was usually the take that she went with. So I, I don't know how she did that, but that, that was really fun. It was challenging since students couldn't use facial expressions and body movements as they would usually do on stage. Their method had to change. Kind of just focusing on the words and how to emphasize different, different sections and really making the character sound alive more than being actively alive with our bodies. Um, it was just very relaxing, actually, just to focus on warming up our voices instead of everything. But yeah, I just really loved the experience. Will Helmy says the audience should be prepared to be transported back in time. One of the cool things is it's a, like a, an old radio show where we have commercials in it. So there's little sections of commercials that would be of the time period. And we actually recorded songs and stuff for those commercials. So that's pretty cool. And Something for me personally, I played three different roles in it, so it was. I'll be one, curious to hear if people can tell if I sounded the same or not, because I kind of play uh, three similar roles, but they're scattered throughout the show. Professor Anderson says her fall schedule was so tight, she wondered sometimes how they'd ever get the recording done. So when we finally were able to do all the recordings in one week as planned, I was ecstatic. And the fact that everyone just loved doing it. They had so much fun. And that's what you want. You want to do hard work, good work, and have everyone just excited about learning. And I think we got it. Everyone is invited to tune in for that radio version of It's a Wonderful Life, Thursday, November 12th at 7 p.m. on air90radio.com. That's A-I-R-9-0-radio.com. In closing, we need your help. For one of our upcoming December episodes, we'd like to hear about unique Christmas traditions that you and your family include at Christmas time. They can be fun ones, funny ones, or ones that make the holidays more spiritually meaningful. In addition, if you have any stories of how God met you in a significant way during a Christmas season at Asbury, we'd love to hear those stories too. If you have something to share, send us a note to our email, and I will contact you to set up a short phone interview. Our email address is belong at asbury.edu. We'd also welcome your ideas for future podcast subjects that you'd find helpful on your journey of lifelong learning. So send us your show ideas or holiday memories to belong at asbury.edu. That's it for this episode of Belonging and Becoming. Join us next time for a fascinating look at the path that took Asbury graduate Andrew Coleman to GE Aviation. Then in December, we'll hear the final part of this interview with Dr. Kevin Brown about the future of Christian higher education. 